Hi, I'm Alex Garcia, and thanks for joining us here at NTWC Live. It is a team effort between Bill Reed, Tim Smith, and I. We'd like to say thank you to a few groups that helped make this possible. It's USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, the Weather Company, and the Weather Board. All right. Uh uh, our first guest on the show today is Dan Riley. He's the Warning Coordination Meteorologist uh, down at the Houston Galveston Forecast Office. Uh, he's had a lot of experience moving around in the Weather Service, Pittsburgh, Virginia, uh, Great Falls, Montana, Detroit, but he's found a home here. He's been 13 years in the Houston area and had a multitude of storms to show for it. Uh, Dan uh, has his master's degree in meteorology from MIT and a degree in physics from the University of Virginia. So be careful what you ask him on questions. All right, uh, Dan, how about giving us a, uh, uh, the overview of uh, how the storm was uh, uh, initiated and it approached to landfall before we turn it over to our guests from Fulton. Sure, Bill. Uh, let me go ahead and show my screen now. All Thank right, you. can you see? Does it look good uh, to everyone? Uh, see a, a yes. cover slide? All right. So I'm going to talk to you about Harvey. Harvey was really uh, two storms in a way. Uh, it was a different storm uh, for folks down the coast. Uh, for us here in the Houston area, it was a, a huge flood event, obviously. And so I'm going to go ahead and, 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 and sort of present this in two parts. Uh, and, and we'll talk now, as Bill said, about the formation and then the approach uh, uh, to the Texas coast. So uh, first off, uh, here's just a candid look at our weather service office. Uh, you know, we had been briefing Harvey all week and uh, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, and this was shift change uh, on uh, Saturday before we had the heaviest rain in the Houston area. And you can see a number of forecasters there uh, briefing each other uh, at shift change, basically working 12 hour shifts at this point. I was headed out uh, and I, I took this uh, photograph here uh, on my way out. Uh, but a little bit about Harvey in the background. I still remember Harvey forming uh, the week before uh, out near the Lesser Antilles as a tropical storm. And there was a cone forecast that took it down to the Yucatan in five days at that point. Uh, and then over the weekend, uh, the storm fizzled. It had weakened. And I think the general consensus at that point is a weak version uh, would sort of make its way over uh, to Mexico ultimately, uh, but that we wouldn't have the storm that we ended up getting. Uh, and then we came in the next week, and if you remember, there was the eclipse and a lot of attention to that. And, and But that Monday that we had the uh, eclipse, some of the models started to show some trends uh, further up the coast and with a stronger storm. And, and so we started to be concerned at that point. Uh, and then we ended up starting briefings uh, the day after on Tuesday. Of course, Harvey ended up re-intensifying rapidly over the Gulf and making landfall as a category four hurricane. And it was the type of storm that we that really keeps us up at night, uh, rapid intensifier, uh, you know, on the Gulf Coast here. Uh, th these are the types of storms we always worry about. Uh, it went from a depression to a category four hurricane in, in very short order. Uh, you can actually see the time series of wind speed here uh, you know, the, just the rapid, rapid intensification up to that Category 4 strength at landfall. And then you see a satellite view here of that well-defined eye, uh, the eye wall here just off the coast. And you can also pick up those spiral bands extending up into the Houston-Galveston area, uh, which ended up causing problems for us in terms of uh, flooding rains and tornadoes. And uh, hopefully you all can see this uh, over the stream. Uh, this is just a satellite loop uh, showing that kind of rapid intensification phase uh, as, it, as it approached the, uh, the coastal bend area, the, the mid-Texas coast. Uh, and then those uh, storms firing up on the right-hand side of the track that we'll talk about uh, later. So I'm going to stop sharing, and I, I think we're going to have discussion about from the Fulton County uh, folks there. Okay, uh, we're very fortunate to have with us uh, two gentlemen that were on the line of fire with responsible positions. Uh, uh, Jimmy Kendrick was the mayor of Fulton at the time of Harvey, and uh, Rick McLester was the emergency manager uh, in Fulton, uh, having a deal with all things 
leading up to and everything afterwards. I, I guess if, uh, uh, who would like to take the lead on the, discussing the chain of events that came by? It's, I, I got a story. Uh, you know, we set up uh, with, uh, uh, Wednesday was ho-hum. You know, we all went to bed thinking, okay, everything's good. And then uh, Thursday morning, uh, we're going in for the 10 o'clock briefing. And uh, I got a phone call from John Metz, our Corpus Christi weather guy. And it's never good when you get a call right before a conference call from your guy. And John Metz says, Rick, I got bad news and worse news. And I said, what you got, John? And he said, well, he said, uh, Harvey intensified. Uh, it's going to be a Category 4. Uh, it looks like uh, Ranzas County, Rockport, Fulton is going to be uh, ground zero. And I said, well, dang, John. Uh, I paused a little bit, and I said, what could be worse? And he said, well... Landfalls in 20 hours got real quiet. Uh, 20 hours. Our whole world operates around evacuation of 40 hours to to make it all work on all cylinders. So uh, got real quiet. Went into the briefing. Called the two mayors and the county judge together um, uh, before, and then we opened up the slides, and then uh, John Metz dropped it on all of us. So Jimmy, jump in there. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be close enough to Rick to hear some of the conversations. So the fear already see, fear was already in my mind of what's going to happen. And as a man, you start thinking about getting the population out. And I give kudos to the greatest CEO commander I've ever had in emergency center is Rick McClester. He uh, kept calm. He did his job. He kept us a brief of what's going on. And John Metz, he's a hero in our book. He, you guys at the National Weather Bureau don't get the credit you deserve. Uh, he took us step to step through this thing. In fact, give you an idea, I was in Arkansas when Ricky called me. He said, you need to get back. Things are starting to happen down there. We may have a hurricane someday real quick. So I jumped in the car and drove back from a funeral up there and got in, and everything just went to craziness. And uh, I, I, when you shut the door in the middle of the night and get ready to open up in the middle of the eye, um, one thing I will tell you, I came out in the eye and went to Fulton to check my town out. And uh, on the way over there, I stopped off at uh, the Marriott, and half the wall had been on the Fairfield Inn and fallen down. And I walked in, and, and one of your weather bureau buddies was there, staying there. And he saw me and walked in. He said, well, I know I'm saved now if the mayor's come to get us. So uh, that gives you an idea of what everybody felt at that time. And a lot of people had to be moved into our school. And we started picking up people in the street who thought in the middle of the hour it was over. So... Uh, yeah, things changed a lot. There was a lot of heroes that night, and a lot of unsung heroes. Uh, what do you? What percentage of your population do you think actually evacuated, given that short notice? 60, 65 to seventy uh, percent, and and it all happened. I mean, we did it without the the the, the game plan. Is obviously we. We bring people together, we put them on the state buses and the school buses, and we ship them inland. But uh, in 20 hours, we couldn't pull that plug. So all we could do was do the mass call, followed up with uh, the typical channel, weather channels, and the 3, 6, and 10 news briefs. And uh, the citizenry, they reacted. Uh, people got up and out, but then there was a lot of those that had just caught off guard. Uh, they they wrote it out those those people that says ah it ain't gonna be bad uh, and uh, I think uh, we opened up we don't shelter obviously we don't have an active shelter in a flood zone but we did this time so our Live Oak Elementary uh, at nightfall we had six people that said okay I'm gonna go stay there uh, well by noon the next day we had all emergency services out and we were picking up people walking around in the days by noon Saturday we had 200 people delivered to the uh, Live Oak Elementary uh, for a shelter. They had no place to go. And of course, no water, no electricity, no air conditioning. Things were deteriorating really bad. And again, kudos to TDM, Texas Division of Emergency Management. Uh, phone call to Brandy Fisher, our uh, district coordinator. And uh, I had shades of uh, Katrina and all the horror stories of the of the Superdome. And that's what I had in my little world of 200 people with no toilets, no flushing water, no no air conditioning and miserable conditions. And uh, and I, I said, I need a shelter manager. She said, no, you need about four buses. Let's get those people out of there. And uh, lo and behold, that, that fleet came in. We loaded those 200 people up, took them to Austin. And that was one thing off my plate. Uh, then we moved on with, you know, again, damage assessments and, and, and all those things that, uh, that come to pass. And uh, one, one figure that sticks out, we had a, I've had a flyer on my desk forever 
14,710 structures gone uh, in Aransas County after the smoke cleared with uh, the damage assessment. And Jimmy, what was it? 33% of our tax base was gone? We didn't know if we were going to make any money. We really, honestly didn't. We didn't know FEMA or what they were going to do. We hadn't been clear with how Ricky and we've gone through scenarios of this. Chief McCluster always did one thing really strong, taught us what to expect to get there. But we did not know what to expect when he opened up the door. That we've never gone through. So uh, when we did the shelter, we did the, I was at Fulton Elementary on the second half of the deal. I had a nice wooden barn in my backyard. Had half my house, saw half my roof, my house raise up. Saw my barn lay down the ground, uh, sitting there watching my stuff go away, as well as other people knowing what went away. Uh, it was a, it was a scary event. It really was, and a lot of people who wrote it out won't ever write another one out. So, let's say we call evacuation again someday. I guarantee it'll be 70, 80 percent of the people to leave. The, the the world of you know we didn't know what was going on in Houston because. We were without electricity for, uh, well, the first uh, evaluation was it was going to be 30 days. Uh, some more heroes, uh, the AEP folks, uh, we had power and 14 days later. Uh, then, of course, it took another week for the Internet and things to come back online. So while we were still trying to recover and find out how bad bad was, uh, Houston, you know, it just kind of went up there. And you guys in Houston were getting hammered. So uh, kudos all over, State of Texas, Division of Emergency Management, National Weather Service. Uh, and then those, the, the, the outcropping of humanity, uh, uh, what stands out in my mind is, is, is you could not drive down the main highway or mini main street and those, the citizens from everywhere came in, uh, loaded up a barbecue pit, ice chest full of food and water, and they set up a, in a, find an empty parking lot and they'd have their kids out there with signs and say, free food and water, please come in and eat with us. Uh, there was not a parking lot that wasn't full of folks that came unsolicited and un, you know unannounced. They just they just said we got to go and they loaded up and came and uh, and and it started from there. And uh, of course, five years later, we're still getting people that uh, that that are still checking on us and finding out what's going on. And and those faith-based organizations, the Mennonites, the Baptist uh, men, and uh, and just all over, just. Uh, uh, Samantha's purse. Those folks just popped in, and and, and it, you just couldn't, you can't operate and, and deal with the mass destruction without those uh, external services that come in that you really wasn't expecting. But God bless those folks that came to help us. Well, I will say this is something that a lot of people don't know. If they live in those 14 counties that deal with hurricanes, we always have to be real careful with documentation, documentation what you own, your house, and stuff of that nature. Uh, the hero in my family is my wife. She documented everything in the house with her cell phone, took cell phone with her to Japan, uh, where she went while, she was, while the hurricane was going on. She happened to visit her son in Japan. But when she got back, when we were doing our insurance deal, she had all that on the phone, and we got more money for lost items because she documented it all being out in the rain and everything else that went on after she got back. So documentation is the thing for all of us. Ricky wrote that down our throat to the point where it became part of our stomach is document, document, document. And then when you deal with FEMA and you deal with Tedum and you deal with all these people, they want to know. And you have to go back and pull that documentation more than once. And the recovery is a tough old road. I don't know if it's still a true statement, but the, the, some of the things I heard through my career after these storms, the, the FEMA guys would come in and remind people of the, the a big hurricane, the recovery is a 10-year proposition. So you guys are well, you guys are about that. They call it the disaster after the disaster. Yeah. 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 And we were very fortunate. Bill. We only took, right now, Fulton is finishing this last project from FEMA. So it's been took this less than five years, really, to get things rebuilt in Fulton. We, we understood what FEMA would do. We, the nice thing is FEMA was very good at it. Gonna have we need to give him kudos. He brought everybody in. We and Ricky really got mad one day, and we were gonna bring them all in the same room with us, as we called them all liars in the same room as we put it up there. Yeah, Ricky, I hadn't changed any. I'll still say what I feel. But uh, we had them all in the room. We talked to them, FEMA, HUD, and everything. We found out a lot of things. Uh, if you're going to be a mayor, or you're going to be a EOC commander, you need to learn the Stafford Act. You need to learn the Disaster Act because all that stuff makes a big difference. Uh, we found out all these parties can't work together like we thought they could because they overlap with each other different rules. And it's not their fault. It's just the way it's set up. And uh, Ricky was 
we get bills at the end of the same Ricky got a bill one time, walked in my office, laid down in front of me, he's eighty something thousand dollars. So what are we gonna do with this? I said, I guess we're gonna have to pay it. We'll find out where. But nowadays when you deal with FEMA and these people and what the officials don't understand is you don't get a handful of money. You have to spend the money that you have and then they will reimburse you with a drop down and send it to your account. So it's pretty tough. You have to go to them and ask for advance sometimes. So that's where you can't get the golden egg. There is no golden egg in this site. Uh, Ricky and I both figured out there, the only thing we got in, we got laid an egg a few times, but uh, other than that, we, we never got that golden egg. We never got to recover. The, yeah, things are better than they were. A hurricane will clean your town up and help you get rid of things. We always wanted to get rid of a few things in our town. I won't say what. Ricky said, don't you know what? This hurricane's going to make it better. Well, those things that we want to get rid of made it through the hurricane. So uh, it just kind of threw a curve to us in a lot of ways. But, again, our community was our community was second to none. And uh, all three of us elected officials, along with Ricky, voiced our opinion as one voice. And if I tell anybody anything in the world, one voice is a lot stronger than three. And when we stepped outside that door, and I'll tell you right now, when I loaded up, loaded up Judge Mills in the car, we were driving down the road, and we saw all the state DPS was coming down the road with the lights on in their cars, and the water's up to the doors like we were in our vehicle. It looked like John Wayne coming over the hill with a bandana around his neck. I knew something was going to happen. It was going to be good. But, uh, you know, we had a lot of people show up right after the hurricane to come help us. Portland. Uh, who else was it, Ricky? Some others there showed up. Law enforcement, all the all those partnerships and camaraderie that you gained uh, through your whatever profession you're in, uh, they couldn't talk to us, but they tried to get to us. And uh, like Jimmy said, uh, John Wayne coming over the hill with a bugle blowing, the cavalry's coming, and uh, Brandy Fisher with district coordinator with TDS, uh, they made it happen. Uh, somebody made the decision we're planting our flag in Rockport, Texas, and and we had every aspect uh, that was available for the state of Texas uh, sitting. Uh, uh, the footprint was probably four blocks by four blocks. Uh, you name it, it came, uh, and I don't know where we'd be without it. Everybody thought we were dead, Bill. They all thought we had been, our, remember, had it after the 911 center collapse, we were all dead and all this other stuff. And we had a state senator, Rose Cocourse. She was so scared that we all died, and she heard that, that she was so convinced that she called the governor a bunch of times to make sure things were going to get in here. And, uh, I can remember walking through, walking through with the governor beside us and seeing what the definition was. And uh, folks, there's a Hall of Famer right here on this picture, and that's Ricky McCluster. He is a Hurricane Hall of Famer. He will not take the kudos for it, but uh, Rensselaer County will always owe him something for what he did. And uh, I love him death like a brother. He's that guy in my little stomach that tells me when I'm wrong and right. Uh, he's always told me that. He reminds me of that quite often. But uh, I love him to death. And, you know, Judge Mills and C.J. Wax and then Pat Mills afterwards, those were leaders. Those were the people who stood up for us. And that's what made a difference in Texas. In fact, we wouldn't do it without y'all. I guarantee that. That's great, guys. I think we're going to uh, get the rest of the storm in here. But hang with us because I know we're going to have a lot of questions for you. Uh, so, Dan, why don't you take us through the flood? All right, thanks, Bill. I'll go ahead and restart that, uh, share my screen again, and uh, hopefully you can uh, see that loop there. Uh, is everybody seeing the satellite loop? Yeah. So uh, we just talked about uh, the impacts to Fulton and uh, the center making landfall with those Category 4 winds, uh, but take a look up the coast, and you'll see these uh, spiral bands on the infrared satellite. Uh, so right now, attention is at the center, but let's look up in Houston. You'll see uh, spiral bands with uh, tremendously uh, powerful thunderstorms coming through with rounds of heavy rain. Uh, the first being Friday night, then there was a break, uh, and then the heaviest rain uh, occurring Saturday night. And so uh, this is kind of a summary of uh, Harvey's track. And, you know, we know from experience, uh, anytime you have a slow-moving tropical system, especially a looping storm, you know, you're looking at tremendous amounts of rain, likely feet of rain. And certainly Harvey fit that bill. Uh, it came in uh, strongly as a Cat 4 uh, and then sort of stalled out uh, southeast of San Antonio uh, and then drifted back, the center did, uh, back offshore with a second landfall in Louisiana. 
but while it was making that slow track, there were spiral bands uh, feeding uh, in off the Gulf, uh, superheated Gulf, uh, with rain rates uh, observed three, four, five inches plus per hour. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, here's a, a look at the Houston radar. And again, you'll see the center making landfall down the coast. But look at those spiral bands pushing through Houston. Here's the first one Friday night. Uh, and the center is weakening at this time. You'll see actually there's a break in the action here. And sure enough, the next band comes in the following night with the heaviest rainfall. And we had a lot of messaging challenges for folks. Uh, it had already been a long grind leading up to the storm. And then we had days of dealing with this storm. So uh, we'll talk more about the messaging challenges in a moment. This was actually our first, uh, not our first briefing. We had been briefing since Tuesday. Uh, but on Friday, before the rain had started, this was our messaging. If you look at the title of this slide, this is from our uh, briefing to emergency managers. Rainfall potentially devastating flood threat. You know, so we're using strong wording. Uh, the rainfall amounts 15 to 30 inches likely, uh, with local amounts 40 inches possible. So this is really strong wording uh, from from my experience. You know, essentially uh, forecasting with some confidence a near record event. And, and so you know, we were trying to hit it as hard as we could. Of course, the national centers were as well. You can see the excessive rain outlooks there in the high risk category for the next three days. And uh, this is actually uh, a forecast uh, that got a reaction from the Wharton County Emergency Manager, uh, Andy Kirkland. He saw this and he's like, why, uh, why am I seeing Wharton County in the bullseye there? And uh, there really was no good news for him uh, other than that, you know, that whole area in darker brown there uh, was looking at that 15 to 30, locally 40 inches of rain. Uh, you know, this is outside everyone's experience. That was one of the messaging challenges we had. You know, they saw this, they, they heard about the uh, flood threat, but not everyone could really envision what that would look like. I think this data is really interesting. This is from the Harris County Flood Control Network. You can go back and look at archived data. You can look at time series for individual gauges. Uh, and so this one is Clear Creek at I-45, not too far from uh, uh, Bill and I right now, uh, just up the road. And it really shows uh, the time series here. Uh, in the upper right, uh, we're starting with Friday evening. And you can see we had that first band come through overnight. Uh, this is broken down by uh, rainfall every hour. And that ended up giving us an, a solid four and a half inches Friday night. And then look at this gap between 11 AM Saturday uh, and about 8 PM Saturday night. Nothing happening, no rain. Uh, there was sunshine, filtered sun outside. A lot of folks heard the forecast, uh, but they saw that there, it wasn't raining. And, and, and a big challenge for the Weather Service was trying to get people uh, focused back in, that we had another heavy rain band coming in that night. And sure enough, look at these rain rates uh, uh, picking up Saturday night, uh, two inches, followed by five inches, followed by five and a half. Remember, these are hourly rainfall amounts at that gauge. Uh, and then two and a half, one down to, by, by uh, 5 a.m., the rain had, hadn't ended, but it had tapered off. So uh, when you add all that up, we're looking at a very quick 20 inches of rain uh, with, in some cases, greater than five inches an hour rates. And so it's no surprise, here's an aerial view of that area, uh, I-45, uh, near Clear Creek, you know, the interstate's flooded out Saturday morning. So uh, now before that heavier rain band, this is the, uh, the, the wording we used, uh, catastrophic flooding expected. Remember, we've had five inches at this point, but we're trying to, to um, uh, pull people back in. Uh, storm surge flooding is, is less of an issue. Tornado threat, we had many tornadoes as well. We had uh, 22 confirmed tornadoes in those spiral bands. Uh, so that was probably our, our secondary impact there. And another challenge we had, as I said, the Saturday afternoon briefing, uh, you know, we're co-located with Galveston County Emergency Management. So an advantage we had there is we were hearing from the EM there, hey, this jurisdiction is, is sending people home. Hey, they're, they're, they're uh, you know, they're not taking this seriously. And so we could be very direct with our uh, Saturday afternoon briefing. And one thing that was very useful was to use the HER rainfall. Uh, and at this point, the rainfall from the National Center wasn't nearly as much for Saturday night. 
they had the five-day forecast excellent, but not the individual band rainfall forecast. So we, we leaned on uh, the, the, the rapid refresh model. It showed 15 inches with this band pivoting in. And sure enough, uh, you know, the rainfall amounts were even more than that, but it had qualitatively the whole idea there that, yes, we have a break now, but don't let your guard down was the, the language we were using Saturday afternoon. And then we all know uh, what happened there, uh, 30 to 60 inches of rain over a huge area. You know, we're talking about uh, several counties with greater than three feet of rain over southeast Texas. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it surprised some folks. But again, the, the forecast was fairly good. It was just hard to communicate because it was such an unprecedented event for most people. And then tornadoes, not to forget tornadoes. And I did find it interesting. Some of our emergency managers were more concerned about the tornadoes uh, than the flooding, uh, you know, because they had had some floods, for example, in Fort Bend County, and they kind of knew what that looked like. Uh, but those bands had not only the very, very heavy rain, uh, but also tornadoes. And, and we counted 22. There, there could have well been many, many more brief tornadoes occurring overnight uh, as Harvey bands pushed through. And we did issue a few warnings. Uh, we issued 157 tornado warnings over uh, a three-day period. Uh, we were in a tornado watch that whole time. Remember, this is a slow-moving hurricane with persistent spiral bands uh, on the right-hand side of the track feeding into our areas. So, uh, you know, and, and that's not to mention the, the, the flash flood warnings, including many flash flood emergencies. So people's phones were, were going off the hook. Uh, another issue we ran into is we occasionally had overlapping flash flood and tornado warnings. So what do you tell people to do then? You know, go inside to the lowest floor or some people were having to get up to the roof. So there were some very unique challenges uh, with Harvey. And uh, just a quick recap, and we can discuss a whole lot more. It was a rapid intensifier as it approached the coast. Not too much time to prepare as was described by the Fulton folks. Uh, but we found as it weakened, uh, inland, the wind part did, uh, and it, it stopped raining here for a while. A lot of people did let their guard down, uh, and so it, it was a real challenge to message, hey, you know, this storm has just begun for us, and uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and stop sharing now. We can we can uh, discuss. Okay. Thank you, uh, uh, Dan. You're right. We'll get back to you with the, the questions there. I, I want uh, Hal Needham to jump in here and introduce our next guest. Thanks, Bill. Great presentations, everybody. And we're excited to hear from Travis Herzog next. He's an outstanding Texas A&M Aggie graduate and now chief meteorologist with ABC 13 KTRK-TV in Houston. Travis, thanks so much for coming on the National Tropical Weather Conference. Hey, it's it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for having me. And Dan, that was, that was a fantastic presentation. So many memories flooding back in, uh, just seeing those slides and hearing what's going on. Um, my heart was in two places, actually, during Harvey, because my in-laws live in Rockport. And so in the run-up to before Harvey made landfall, my job was uh, to convince them to evacuate, because at the time they were thinking, uh, we're probably just going to ride this one out. Thankfully, they were one of those people that decided to leave. Uh, their neighbors across the street ended up staying, and uh, it was a terrifying experience. They had 13 straight hours of hurricane-force winds down in Rockport. And we actually visited about 10 days after landfall. I think it was Labor Day weekend. We went down there uh, to go visit my in-laws and kind of cheer them up and bring them some food. And I'll never forget riding that bridge on 35 where you kind of ride into the peninsula and just seeing the massive defoliation that was going on. Uh, so many trees, all those oak, all those oak trees that were just down, uh, no leaves left. It was just Unbelievable. It looked like you were driving in during the dead of winter. And here it was early September at the time. So part of our hearts were in Rockport. And then, of course, we live in Houston. And that was kind of phase two of this hurricane. And I still marvel at just how incredible this storm was and, and never want to live through anything like it again. Because uh, a typical hurricane comes through Texas in and out in less than 24 hours and we're done. Uh, it's rare that we Category 4 hurricane. Uh, prior to, to, to Harvey, uh, Celia recently got the upgrade to a Category 4 at landfall back in 1970 when they did the reanalysis. Uh, prior to that, it was Hurricane Carla in 1961. So it's just rare that we get a hurricane this strong. And then to have one not only come in that strong, but then to just stop and sit for days on end, we've just 
never really observed anything like that before. Uh, you know, we've seen tropical storms and depressions and systems stall out. And uh, my colleague, David Tillman, and I, we used to kind of bounce back and forth, like worst case scenarios. What do you think we could face here in Houston? And as far as flooding goes, we said, well, I think the worst thing would be something like Allison, but it happens everywhere over Houston instead of just a few, a few different watersheds. And uh, that's exactly what we got with Harvey's. It was uh, just just a remarkable storm, and uh, and Dan did a very good explaining the the messaging challenges we had with such a unique storm uh, being on TV. We, we are kind of the the public face of of a lot of the meteorology that's going out in the forecasting, and we had quite a few challenges to be able to. Uh, thoroughly articulate the threat, help people to wrap their minds around what the world may look like after this comes on through, and uh, and the messaging challenges with dual flash flood warnings and tornado warnings. It uh, it was a, a very challenging time that, that took its toll on all of us for sure. I gave a little bit of it from the old timer perspective. My first Texas flood was 1978, uh, tropical storm Amelia, which was. Like Allison, otherwise a no-name event, 40-mile-an-hour max winds, dropped 48 inches of rain up in Kerrville. The Guadalupe River at the, the next day or it passed underneath I-10, had more water cubic feet per second flowing through it than Mississippi did at St. Louis at that same time. Incredible flood. And we had a hydrologist there. I was brand new, and I was working side by side with him on the warnings. And he says, Bill, you need to remember this event. You'll never work another one like it. A year later, we had Tropical Storm Claudette. Uh, that was 43 inches of rain and only 24 hours just down the road in Alvin, Texas. Uh, he didn't tell me that again on that one. And, and I kind of said, this is probably going to happen again. And uh, a bunch of us actually wrote a paper that never got published about what would happen if a uh, 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 Claudette or Amelia unloaded right over a metropolitan area. And then we had Allison, which was, that was proof of the concept of the, the flooding. And like Travis pointed out, uh, the western suburbs of, uh, of Houston had less than two inches of rain in Allison. Uh, but it was pretty close to a similar event to what we had uh, uh, with Harvey. So, I'm not going to tell anybody we'll never have another Harvey like that. It's just the nature of our geography. Uh, the storms that come in here, we're in the split between the high out west and the subtropical height of the east. And if it's like it is right now, uh, they'll stay south or east of us. But if it just reorients a little bit, you get that stagnant pattern, you can get one stall. So we just get there, be ready for the the uh, the next one. Uh, uh, Pickle, uh, Hal, you probably got some good questions. I'll let, let you lead off some questions here for us. You know, thanks, Bill. And uh, I really enjoyed hearing your history there with uh, with these different storms like Claudette and, and the, the storms from the, the late 70s. I'm sharing my screen right now. I just wanted to ask a few questions about rainfall distribution. Uh, Dan, you might have some ideas on this, perhaps, Bill. You know, I, I, I was in Galveston for the duration of Hurricane Harvey. And a lot of my friends in the Houston-Galveston corridor initially said, oh, it looks like it's going to miss us. As Dan was showing with the radar loops, Harvey was centered well to our southwest when a lot of these really tremendous rain bands were coming into the Houston-Galveston metro area, then over to Beaumont-Port Arthur. Here's a track of Hurricane Harvey, and you can see the rainfall distribution is really well to the you know, northeast of where the storm kind of stalled out initially. And this got me thinking, you know, even, even like Corpus... Uh, Metro Corpus wasn't that far from the original landfall near Port Aransas and Rockport, but they really didn't see that much rain. Got me thinking about rainfall distributions, and I started looking through these different maps. This is Hurricane Isaac 2012. You can see the track there and the rainfall distribution. And Isaac is basically going along the western periphery of the heavy rain area, which was almost entirely to the right of the track. Similar thing with Gustav in 2008. It's kind of, it's coming into the Northwest, coming into South South Louisiana, and most of that heavy rainfall is, is to the right of the track. Um, and this is Ida, again, heavy rainfall to the right of the track, but Ida continued to track inland. And when it got to the Northeastern states, what's interesting is the heavy rain was to the left of the track. And, and I've seen this in a few other cases. This is Agnes from 72 the tremendous rainfall in pennsylvania there to the west of the track uh, it, the the note on the map there says mid-latitude 
mid-latitude cyclone track. So obviously when we're getting into the northeastern states, sometimes we have fronts and mid-latitude cyclones that, that may impact this as well. I've noticed a few of these hurricanes when they're tracking to the northeast or the north-northeast approaching the northern gulf, instead of the heavy rain to the right of the track, it's often to the left of the track. This is Opal from 95, and you can see the heavier rain was actually to the left of the track. I'm assuming perhaps there's there's a trough or a front to its west that's forcing it to go more in a northeast direction. Maybe that influences the rain distribution. And this is the last, I have seven maps to show you. This is number seven, and this one just completely baffles me. This is Hurricane Hannah two years ago in 2020, mixed landfall in South Texas, but really the heavy rain in this case is to the left of the track. And I, I can't see that a front or anything was, was forcing it. So I'm kind of curious about some of these rainfall distribution patterns. Again, with Harvey, a lot of it was really displaced from the, from the track. Um, Dan and maybe Bill, could you share any insights on maybe what drives some of these patterns? Well, the, uh, the, uh, you hinted at the actual causes. The ones that are uh, rapidly entering the, the mid-latitudes are being tugged that way by dynamics and the westerlies, and they phase just right with the, the, the jet out to the west and, and the tropics out to the east, and it displaces the rainfall uh, further off to the, to the left instead of the right of the storm. As for the Hannah one, uh, boy, I don't know about that one. Uh, maybe Dan remembers that one or, or Tim since he had to live with it. I remember in the terms of, of, of talking on the air so many times about how the heavy rainfall patterns typically on the right, and and but this one is an, an unusual one in a lot of ways. I still don't understand the exact reasoning behind it, but, but we talked about it a lot. So, but yeah, how that was an unusual storm in a lot of ways. Um, but but Harvey was was <laughs> it was just, seemed like it was everywhere. It was right at the track, but then once the track moved, um, and Dan jumped in on that because yeah, more on the Harvey, but but. You know, certainly Hannah was an exception. Yeah, the only insight I can offer for Harvey is, uh, you know, there's some notion of a core rain event, you know, where the rain really blossoms near the center. Uh, but Harvey wasn't that. It was driven by those really intense bands, well, well removed. Uh, another storm I'd mentioned from my East Coast days was Floyd. You know, there was a case where you had a hurricane off Florida, but you had a coastal uh, uh, boundary, essentially, with rain extending well out ahead. So I think... You know, that fits with, for example, that Ida uh, distribution. Uh, but I don't have any insight on Hannah uh, particularly. You know, that would be a good thing. I can follow up with the Corpus and Brownsville offices. Thanks, guys. I appreciate your insights there. Okay. Uh, Tim, what you got from the, the viewers? Well, we do have a couple of good questions coming in from the viewers online. The first one uh, is, can anybody speak to how the contaminated floodwaters affected the recovery process? Um, that probably applies in, in, as much in the Houston area. I remember I was in Houston covering the storm, and they talk about, oh, my, the, the refineries on the east side, the water, you're not going to be able to get into help recovery because of that. And it's a good question coming from Casper. I can tell you, it is something I worry about a lot. I mean, I do remember seeing some of those photos of a sheen, you know, in the in the in the floodwaters. Also with uh, Ike, you know, a storm like Ike with the surge aspect, um, and you know, that, so that it's another worry about that Cat Four landfall, you know, on Galveston uh, with today's uh, industry there. You have that secondary impact, so you know that could be a huge concern, uh, Travis. Yeah, I don't really recall uh, contaminated floodwaters slowing anything down. I mean, it was like we were under attack and everyone was flooding. We had over half a million vehicles that flooded, quarter of a million homes that flooded, uh, and, and everyone was just trying to put their lives back together as quickly as they could. So I live in a neighborhood where half the homes flooded. And block west, my, my house was fine, but a block west for me, there were three to four feet of water in every single home. And, uh, and, and people just, you know, were just trying to do everything they could to get back on their feet. And, uh, and so I, I don't think it really slowed anyone down. It was a concern, but I think a lot of people just got to a place of acceptance that this is just our reality and we've got to wade through this muck to try to restore our lives again. What about, you know, Eric, I remember there was a, a plant out east of Houston. I don't remember the details. I remember going out there that there was concern. There was a fire, I believe. And maybe you guys remember more specifics. I don't. I just remember that everybody flocked that direction when we should have been going the other way because of what might have been in the air. What was that? That was uh, Arkema. Uh, and, and you're right. That's a good example of a secondary hazard. Uh, you've got flooding around an area where there's some chemicals being stored and, and uh, loss of power, loss of refrigeration. 
Uh, and so then all the focus is on, you know, are those things going to catch fire? Well, yes, they probably will. Uh, and then we were able to enlist the help of, uh, uh, of a group called IMAC, which is a federal modeling uh, uh, organization. Uh, and so you get all these secondary things going on. There was another, I think, pipeline, underwater pipeline that uh, was having issues too. So uh, it kind of jogged my memory there. Yeah, I just remember seeing the, the smoke cloud off on the horizon and saying, I don't think I want to go that direction <laughs> as, a, as, as a, you know, representing the media going another way. Uh, James wants to know what infrastructure upgrades have been done or ordered as a result of Harvey. Have we seen any big changes? How about uh, uh, Jimmy or, or, or Rick? Uh, do, do you, have you had changes in how you, how you build your public infrastructure down there from what, what you learned with the storm? Well, Neil, I can tell you this, uh, after the storm, Tatum got everybody together and brought us all into Texas A&M, and we had meetings for about three to four days every time we turned around about what we need to do different, and I was blessed to see the different side of this hurricane from Harris County, Sugar Land, and all, you know, those counties all up there that had flooding all the time. This was their fourth or fifth disaster by this stage of the game <clears throat> from flooding. Travis probably collaborate on that because every time it rains, they flood them in that part of the country and create problems for them and have another disaster. So it's a disaster after disaster for them. In our case, our infrastructure was tore up in a lot of ways because of moving the houses, tearing houses down, so we couldn't bring water back in. So our infrastructure was we had to improve homes that were rebuilt over time. And in Houston, it's not rebuilding homes. It's re-spacking the walls and bringing all the water out and getting rid of it and starting over from ground level. Uh, we did have a flood in our area. It came in through the Copano Bay area under the Keith Causeway. That was where the water surge came around the backside of our little peninsula. If it had came across our peninsula, we'd have been three times worse than the situation we were. Uh, you know, it wiped us all out, if I remember correctly. If Ricky can evaluate that. But uh, so when I learned everything up at Texas A&M about the watersheds that y'all go through, they've tried to find new gauges to open, which how to open the gauges, new alarms to keep the water flow coming down. They've got a lot of new infrastructure that's been going on and FEMA's been real strong with that. And so has uh, Texas Department of Emergency Management named Kid. Got anything, Rick? <laughs> Yeah, Rick, jump in if you've got a comment on that. Well, I, you know, it's just important. like, it's just, it seems like it's a never-ending battle. Uh, you plan for the future about what happened in the past, and, and these things are, it's its a moving target to try to grab. Yes, we can understand what happened in Harvey, or try to understand what happened in Harvey, but the Weather Service will, will be quick to say there's never two storms alike. It, it's always something different. I hear these guys echo it all the time, but infrastructure yeah the new the courthouse the old courthouse blew away so yeah the new courthouse is going in it's elevated now uh the new structures that have been built are today's structural standards so as far as infrastructure you know never never would i have advised the public that when they evacuate the message has always been turn off all your electricity never have i heard the words go outside and turn your water meter off well, we had a situation where we thought that we had a major water break. We had no water pressure. I mean, everything was gone. Uh, well, it, it wasn't one big 30-inch main break. It was that 14,710 structures that no longer existed, and the water just sat there and ran because those houses were gone. So the water meter's just flowing, and it emptied all of our storage water capacity. And and it took it took not... It didn't take hours, it took days and weeks to get debris off the water meters and the city crews out there closing valves to try to get some kind of pressure back. Uh, those are kind of some of the things you just can't deal with as far as infrastructure, other than the fact of start the message to the public, add one more thing to your checklist when you leave, go out there and turn your, turn your valve to your house off because your house may not be there and the water's going to continue to flow. Little things like that. Back to that contamination, that became an issue to us because we get our water from Corpus Christi. So Corpus, we thought we weren't getting water, but Corpus Christi shut us off to protect us from contamination. Everything is back flowing into the houses, back flowing in down to the pipes that may be busted open somewhere. Uh, we were we sent people out just to turn water off at everybody else. If they saw a house that no one's in it, turn the water off. And 
that was a big issue. That was our biggest infrastructure problem besides uh, cleanup. Travis, I saw you unmuted on that for a bit to talk about the infrastructure in Houston. Go ahead and jump on that as well. So in Houston, what we're learning to do is to live with the water. The Bayou City flooding is part of our history. It's why the Harris County Flood Control District was created. And to give a little more context for those who aren't aware, uh, earlier in that we were going through really bad droughts. And then in 2015, the floods started coming. So we had had a few significant floods in 2015, 2016. And then Harvey was just the crescendo to all of that. But but some neighborhoods in that in that two-year span flooded four times. And, you know, people completely had to gut and rebuild. And then it flooded again. And then they gutted and rebuilt. And then Harvey came and flooded them even worse. And so uh, there's been some changes to local codes in Houston in terms of how high your house must be elevated above the 500 year floodplain and it's pretty pretty significant it's two feet above the 500 year floodplain um you know it used to be that there were just specifications for the 100 year floodplain but now we're talking the 500 year and uh, i believe fema has recently worked the floodplains uh in a, a post harvey analysis i know my flood insurance surely went up quite a, uh, recently and so uh and so you know that's one of the things we're seeing uh, on the southwest side of Houston, that, that was one of those ones that flooded three or four times, and they've they've taken in some cases these you know these old ranch homes built in the 1950s right along Bray's Bayou where they really had no business of being built in the first place, and now they've jacked them up 10, 12 feet off the ground. Uh, so you know you're not seeing homes on stilts like you do along the coast. They've just put brick all around it and, and, and underneath the of the house. That's one of the things we're seeing here in response to all the floods. You know, Houston has largely been spared from direct hits from hurricane winds uh, in a significant capacity. We had Ike in 2008. Uh, we had a brief little run-in with Nicholas last year. You had Alicia back in 1983. And so really our building codes from a wind perspective are relatively untested. And that's the bigger concern, I think, with all the chemical plants on the east side of town is how are they going to fare when we get a Category 4 storm inevitably that comes back up the Houston Ship Channel or into Galveston Bay. Um, that's when we're going to get into a lot of trouble is when we see even, you know, as Lou Fincher, God rest his soul, used to always say, when you get to Category 4 or 5 status, there's going to be code failure. Uh, and, and so that's keeps me up at night in Houston. We're making good progress against floods. We won't stop them, but we can mitigate the uh, kind of, you know, the, the severity through the, through, the mid, through the projects we're doing to widen the bayous. There's been a lot of bayou widening, channel status widening, more uh, detention ponds have been built. Um, so we're making good progress in the flooding perspective. We are not prepared for a Category 4 hurricane at all if we were to take a direct hit. That's, that's the sober reality of life here in Houston. Yeah, the, the, the folks that study out in the Institute for Building and Home Safety that studies wind impact on buildings uh, lists Texas in general as one of the least prepared states relative to building codes against wind. I think probably you guys down in, in Fulton are in better shape than most, but you get 30 miles inland and, and I think you build to 100 mile an hour, which is way too low for, for what the uh, ultimate risk is. Well, Bill, we've got different codes in the 14 counties that are part of the Texas Windstorm Insurance Association, TWIA. And Ricky's covering his head because I'm heavy with that. But our building codes require us to do different things in other parts. And we're going to start seeing these building codes move into Houston, Harris County and stuff, not just for the wind as much as flooding. So building codes are going to be set by different legislators and by different officials and different councils that are going to set this up. But that's an issue that we will look at, and that's what I'm not looking at, but that's what the government's going to have to look at because FEMA and the insurance companies are pushing them. Yeah, and there, the, the, there's a myth out there that raises the price of the house astronomically, and the, the folks that actually build houses that way in, in Alabama have shown us that it's 5% or so to make a difference between a 100-mile-an-hour house and 130. And I've seen pictures of some of the houses down that were – the Harvey came in that were built to a above code standard and you hardly know a hurricane went through them. It's just amazing. The fact that if they can hold the line on that 500 year and higher floodplain, it's not the most, uh, the builders don't like it. It starts to eliminate or cause, makes it very cost prohibitive to build in places 
that, that, that are below that, but it should be. We shouldn't be building where it's going to flood. The uh, uh, risk of flooding is, is that high. I also think how we're building, you know, we, we have wood and, and, uh, and sheetrock and, you know, we need to look more at, you know, what they do in other parts of the world that frequently face floods and, 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 you know, typhoons, they, you know, a lot of concrete is what goes into homes. Yeah. The house I rented, the place I rented in, uh, in Florida when I was over there was a concrete house. If it had flooded, it would be pretty much get a bucket full of water and Clorox, clean it up, throw away the stuff that you didn't elevate and start over from that point. You don't have to tear your walls out to get it all back together. Exactly. In Fulton and Rangers County, we have a lot of storage buildings. And they're metal buildings with made out of metal frames. And if Ricky goes back and thinks, I think I'm correct on this, but we had less damage with some of those than we did some of the regular houses built out of wood because those structure of those metal buildings are so strong. So it's things that we need to look at to make changes in our future. That's, yep, yeah, it can be done. And it'll make it, in the long run, it will benefit you when the next storm hits. Uh, Hal, you got anything else? Well, I'm glad you mentioned a lot of those homes in Alabama. People can check out the Fortified Project. I think there are more than like 15,000 fortified houses now in Alabama. They did very well with Hurricane Sally. So I'm, I'm glad we're talking about not just where we build and how high we build, but also how we build. Yeah. What about you, you guys in, 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 you know, in Aransas County that after this storm went through, you know, the, the national media really concentrated on Houston and Beaumont. Um, and sometimes I feel like there's a community that's kind of forgotten um, after a storm. And did, did you guys feel that way? Because I know even from our perspective down here in, in deep South Texas, you know, south of where you guys are, we all went to Houston. We covered Houston, 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 Beaumont. And did you guys feel forgotten in some ways after the storm? Jimmy, jump in there. <laughs> well, I fought real hard to make sure that we stay on the front of, front of the news. I'm kind of probably a narcissist. I was chasing myself so fast trying to get through that everything was done for the community. But uh, we were lost. We were easily overshaded due to the population and numbers. But I've got to give the kudos out to our elected officials for trying to bring us always back to Austin. And if you go back and look at what happened for Harris County and the deal with the new laws being made in Austin after that, after Gina Morrison, Lois Cocourse, and some of the others put up some new bills to help Tatum to develop themselves better for the communities, we all worked together. I remember Sylvester Turner, a Houston mayor, calling us and talking to me a couple of times. It's just we have to remember that bigger cities take over our cities. And we're a community that we... Uh, we're considered a rich community in a way, but our average income people lost all their homes. We don't have the workers anymore because couldn't affordable living went away. And in Houston, you have such poverty that it showed it. Uh, they had a different hurricane. We did. We had a hurricane. They had a flood. So we have to. We had to remember that priorities had to go in different directions. There was a lot more people up there, and you know, it's just we had to fight for what we got and. Thank God, uh, good old Lord listens to everybody, and we get what we need. And I feel like we've made a lot of good accomplishments, both as a county and as two cities. And I'm glad Harrison, Harris County and all that up there, you know, Sugar Land and Roseburg and all them, are they've got new plans on what they do with the flooding. They've got all that flooding program started up there. So good money went everywhere. And so we all were sharing our time. But, yes, we were overshadowed a little bit by Houston. <laughs> Jimmy, Jimmy threw a lot of kudos my way, but I got to throw one back at him. What's the old saying? The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Well, if it wasn't for some uh, very vocal people, uh, yeah, our little small community uh, and some of the communities around us would have been uh, would have been forgotten. And and yes, uh, politically, we there was that big sense, but it wasn't just politically. The feedback from the citizenry was that we were forgotten, and that was big, overwhelming. But but thank goodness for our, our local leadership. Uh, the squeaky wheel got the grease. There's no question about that. And uh, I'm looking at one of them that was the most most vocal and most loudest. Uh, when the folks from Washington, the president, and those folks start coming in and they don't even want to talk to us, Jimmy's not even invited to the table to speak. Uh, he's in the back room and, and overheard a message as he walked out the door. Uh, yes, uh, the squeaky wheel got the grease. And kudos to, uh, to our local small town officials 
uh, screamed real loud and, and their voices were heard. So, yes, sir. Well, Houston really did a damage to referral. Frio County or town of Frio, they were really forgotten in a lot of ways. That no one thought about them getting the rain that you talked about, Travis. That rain stayed on there for a long time and then came back out to the Gulf. And that town was totally destroyed from floodwaters and wind. So there were some people that we forgot about as a group, and we had to get FEMA into those places. We, we've done our hour, and guy, we appreciate each and every one of you here, but I do want to just go down the line and say, okay, we're five years removed from Harvey. Five years. Um, and let me start with Rick. Um, just give us your impression. Five years later, what, you know, where are we? What did you go through? Just kind of your, your final thoughts five years after the storm. What did we learn? Well, I think there's been a lot of, lot of progress. Like Jimmy mentioned, uh, TDM is now moved and connected with A&M. There's now laws in place. Uh, a revamp of what Harvey did changed the world, changed the, the statutes. Uh, we're better off today. Uh, communications are better. Um, so it, it's, we're better off today. Uh, it was an experience that I wouldn't want to go through again, but we're better off today, and hopefully the next one will be handled a whole lot better. Terrific, and we thank you for your time. Uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts five years after the storm? Five years after the storm, we're still here. And uh, the thing is, we did not lose a life, and five years later, if one comes back again, we know how to maybe handle it a little bit better. But the thing that most of all is, we thank you for having a tracking system. We, if we would not have that tracking system we've got today from the Weather Bureau, we would have been really up the creek. And uh, to me, that's a godsend because we were able to use it. Ricky lived by it, I lived by it, and so did the judge and the other mayors. And when John Metz spoke, we listened. And we always have, I remember one thing John Metz said that the Weather Bureau, he said, we were going to ask John what he was going to do. He said, I'm going to go on board up. Well, I went home and boarded up. So, guys, y'all are important to us. And thank you for sharing your time with us. But we want you to know how important each and every one of you are. You've made a big difference in a lot of people's lives. We appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Good comments. Let's go up to Houston. Travis, again, five years later, uh, final thoughts on, on what we're talking about today? Yeah, to piggyback off of what uh, Jimmy just said there, uh, I am blown away at how they're getting at sniffing out these extreme events and predicting them ahead of time so that we can do what we can to get the word out to people to save lives and mitigate loss to property. Uh, it, is, it is remarkable how good we are getting. Uh, th that was one of the big challenges ahead of Harvey was, do we believe these computer models that are spitting out over 30 inches of rain? Uh, is this, can this really happen? And as we found out, yes and then some, even double that. What concerns me is Houston did not get the worst of the rains. If the west side of Houston had had 60 inches of rain, that'd be almost double what was actually received. So as bad as it was, we know it can be worse, not just because of what Harvey produced, but because of some modeling that's been done post-Harvey by our state climatologist, Dr. John Nielsen Gammon. He went back and he looked at, had Harvey followed the NHC forecast to a T after landfall, they predicted it would move slower than it actually did. So believe it or not, Harvey sped up a little bit on its way eastward. I think it was uh, predicted to go at about three miles per hour, and it went about, let's say, five, something along those lines. His modeling post-Harvey showed that there could have been precipitation maximums up to 90 inches over that same five-day period. That's, that's sobering to think about what could potentially throw at us. And, uh, and I think a lot of us thought, well, after Harvey, we're done. That was the storm of a lifetime. And as Bill said, let's not say that. Two years later, we had a Melda. Our system, it, it developed right as it was moving inland, and it dumped into one inches of rain 50 miles east of Houston, uh, kind of over Hankheimer and, and Winnie, just uh, between, uh, between Winnie and Beaumont. And it, you think about if that had fallen, say, right over Houston, 30 inches in one night, that would have been Harvey-level rains, but instead of spread over four to five days, that would have been in one night. And so uh, I'm definitely living down here along the Gulf Coast at what what the atmosphere can throw at us. And so uh, I'm grateful that we learn from every storm. We're getting better at forecasting. We're making adjustments to try to mitigate future disasters. Uh, but I don't. We can't prepare for the last storm. We have to prepare for the next. 
and uh, we need in our mitigation efforts to go absolutely for worst case scenarios every single time. I think Bill Reed talks about this a lot. Otherwise, you're just giving a false sense of security uh, when you don't mitigate for the worst uh, case scenario. And we're still ill prepared here uh, when, it, when it comes to getting the hurricane part of a hurricane, the, 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 the eye wall. Uh, we really need something like the Ike Diker force to protect a vital national security interest, and that is the Houston Ship Channel and that port and what that means for our, our economy, not just here in America, but globally, especially when it comes to the insecurity we have now a few going on around the world. Uh, we really need to get our act together and, uh, and, uh, and work on something here to protect us better in Southeast Texas. Those are my thoughts. Travis, thank you. Great thoughts, and we appreciate that. And, and uh, uh, thank you for spending your time with us today, because important insight there from Houston, and, and we wish you and your family the very best. So thanks for being with us today. Dan Riley, um, you know, you talked about we, you know, a storm, we don't have experience with something like this, but you know, unfortunately, we do have experience with some of these things now. Another one gave us more experience, but as Travis mentioned, it could be worse. What are your thoughts five years after the storm? You know, I love to hear from uh, Fulton folks about the John Metz phone call, and you know that's really a, a lesson I've learned over the years: the importance of those relationships, building that trust, uh, reaching out directly if you can. Uh, you know, we, we present webinars, graphics, and so on, and, and numbers and things like that. But uh, really, letting people know when to worry. You know, when do they need to worry? That's kind of the bottom line for a lot of our emergency managers. So post-Harvey, I heard from some, they got the message, they prepared. Others maybe didn't believe it. Uh, others seemed caught off guard. You know, maybe we didn't communicate it uh, directly enough. So some of the lessons learned there we, we, uh, we uh, took for the freeze event. You know, we talked about uh, failing infrastructure, record cold, dangerous storm. Take this seriously, you know, being very explicit about it. And I saw that from Travis and all the broadcasters as well. Just the need for really letting people know with direct language, hey, this is not your typical winter event or not your, you know, typical flood event. But it's a it's a process, you know, figuring out how to message things better, learning from the past event uh, events, uh, working closely with the media. You know, those relationships are very important as well. So, um, you know, it's kind of a work in progress. Harvey uh, taught us a lot of things post event. What this is what we showed. What did you hear? And, and you might get five different answers from people in the room. Uh, so that's kind of a rambling way to say it, but all about relationship building, communication clearly, uh, and, 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 and to get that weather piece out to folks. And thank you. I know a lot of time is spent on almost every word in those statements to, to get the right response. And, and thank you for that and, and all the time and effort that goes into that. We appreciate that. Um, let's bring Dr. Hal Needham back in for some thoughts as well. Dr. Hal, um, Peter Black commented on your on your take earlier about uh, the big rain event, usually on the right side of the track. He uh, talks about Hurricane Celia in 1970, and he said that the damage surveys there found that the uh, majority of the damage and rain problems and flood problems were on the left side of the track of Celia in 1970. So you got another left track in South Texas, Hal. Thank you for that. Yeah, very interesting. It's interesting to see these patterns. It's good to study them and obviously communicate them with the public. Kind of going off what Dan said, I see a lot better communication since Harvey as well. Dan, you actually had a bullet point in one of your slides that we didn't really get to dig into, but you talked about when, when uh, you know, we often define these storms or categorize them by the Saffir-Simpson scale, and we'll say, okay, this storm has now been downgraded. Does that miscommunicate with the public? This happened in Florence in 2018 as well. Everyone was saying, oh, it's been downgraded to a lower category or tropical storm, but your 30 inches of rain hasn't started yet. So I, I think the communication is getting better with that. We often hear there's more to the story than the category, and that's a message. one of the main messages we have to keep communicating to the public. Great conference today, everybody. Thanks, Dr. Howell. Appreciate it. Bill Reed, back to you to wrap things up on your end. Bill? Great. Yeah, great discussion. The, the takeaway I get from listening to all this is how far uh, those of us that work uh, for a living in disasters like this, how far along we've come and uh, the capability to forecast them and more importantly, the uh, capabilities to intercommunicate with each other and to get the word out. I think that uh, to change the, the direction of where damages and, and other losses are going on that, we, the focus has to be on uh, how do we get people to prepare better in advance? I think that's what would make a bigger difference. 
Thanks, Bill. I think this conversation could go another two hours, but I know everybody has things to get to today. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. Dan Riley, Travis Herzog, Jimmy Kendrick, Rick McLester, of course, also Bill Reed, Dr. Hal Needham. Thank you, gentlemen, for a great conversation today. We appreciate it very much. I want to thank our sponsors who are part of the program. Once again, the South Powder Island Convention and Visitors Bureau. Join us again on South Powder Island for the National Tropical Weather Conference in person in April of 2023. NTWC will be live there. USAA, thanks for all you do to make this work for us. The Weather Company, Visit Brownsville, Weather Boy, Black Magic Design, Walmart, Port of Brownsville, all the folks that make these a possibility. Next week, we'll have uh, Dr. Ian Gianmanko from, uh, the, he's the lead research meteorologist at IBHS, the research center. He'll be with us next week to talk about how things they're doing at IBHS. So that's next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Thanks to all who joined us today. Everybody who asked questions, we appreciate it. We will see you next Wednesday, 10 a.m. for another edition of NTWC Live. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.